0: Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and if you're wondering about the name, (laughs) I love to listen to true crime while I clean. So because cleaning and true crime are my two loves, I've combined the two. And every week I post a new whole house cleaning motivation video on my YouTube channel, See Elise. And in the corner of the video, I'm in a little bubble telling you about a true crime case that's interesting to me. So cleaning and crime. But for some, the cleaning footage is too distracting, or some people just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. If you want to check out the video version of today's story, be sure to check out my YouTube channel, and you'll find a playlist of all of my cleaning and crime episodes. But if you just came here for the crime and not the cleaning, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast. Some episodes may be disturbing to some listeners. Be sure to check the show notes for each episode for specific trigger warnings. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Today's true crime case is about Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. This guy was a complete monster. And as usual for serial killers that were active in the 1970s, he got like 1 million second chances. (laughs) And while he was convicted with his victim count at eight, it's believed that he may have killed up to like 130 people. So let me tell you about this douche while I clean my house, cool? Okay, trigger warning on this one. We're talking about sexual assault, including assault on children. And this guy was a super violent piece of shit. So it may be too much for some people. So please protect your mental health and listener discretion is advised. On September 25th, 1969, 8-year-old Tally Shapiro was walking along Hollywood Sunset Boulevard on her way to school where she went to 2nd grade, and a car pulled up alongside her. The man inside was friendly and he offered to give her a ride to school, but Tally declined and told the man, "I don't talk to strangers." But the smiling and very charming man in the car told her, "No, no, don't worry about it. I actually know your parents and they said it was all right. Plus, I have this really incredible photograph that I want to show you." And Tally didn't want to get in the car, but she was raised to respect her elders, and the guy was saying that he knew her parents. She, she basically felt like she couldn't say no. Tally got into his car, and when he began driving, he asked her when to school start, and he was delighted when she told him, and he said, this is great. I have enough time to take you to see that amazing picture I wanted to show you, and we still have enough time for me to drive you to school after and get you there on time. And Tally began to feel very nervous, and she seriously considered jumping out of the moving vehicle, but she just tried to stay calm, and she went with the man to his apartment. But, Luckily, a man in his car on Sunset Boulevard saw all of that go down. He saw a little girl get into a strange man's car and he was like, got a really bad feeling, and he followed the car all the way to an apartment building, and he watched a little girl get out of the car and be led inside by a grown man, and he was like, "Mm mm-mm. So he drove to the nearest phone and called police and reported the suspected kidnapping and gave them the address of the apartment. Now, agreeing that this was very suspicious, Officer Chris Camacho Jr. was dispatched to the apartment to check things out. He knocked on the door of the apartment, and after a small delay, a man opened the door, and he was like, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I was in the shower, how can I help you? And Officer Camacho said that he will never forget the face of the man that opened the door. He just looked at him and he was like, evil. Can't explain it. This guy has an evil fucking face. Now, the man that entered the door was clearly naked, but he didn't have a drop of water on him. No towel, completely dry. You're full of shit, my dude. And Officer Camacho knew something was terribly wrong, and he was like, yeah... You need to open the door right now. I need to talk to you. The guy inside said, okay, I, let me grab my pants. I'll put my pants on real quick. The officer said, you have three seconds. The Door closes. Officer Camacho counted to three, and he kicked the door down. Straight ahead on the kitchen floor was the body of eight-year-old Tally Shapiro in a pool of blood, not moving, and it looked like she wasn't breathing. Now, he couldn't see the man. Clearly, he had run to the back of the apartment. He was running. And Officer Camacho had to make a split-second decision. Run to the back of the apartment and chase the suspect and maybe catch him, or run to Tally and see if he can save her. Now, I consume a lot of true crime. (laughs) It's not very often that I tear up. This one got me. I watched ABC's 2020 interview. This officer describe what he walked into that day, and he just has the sweetest face. And he started crying, and I was PMSing, and I was like, oh, no. It was over for me. He decided to run to Tally's side and administer some sort of aid because, he said, through tears, I just couldn't leave her alone like that. Oh! So, a backup officer gets there just then, and he goes running to the back of the apartment to search for the suspect. Officer Camacho got to Tally's side, and she wasn't breathing, and there was a large, about two-pound bar across her neck. And he had just gotten down to the ground to try and check her vitals when she started gagging instinctively, he just started yelling, like, something along the lines of, like, oh my god, oh my god, she's breathing, she's alive! And the backup officer who had ran to the back of the apartment heard Officer Camacho yelling and thought he was yelling for help, so he stopped and turned around and went back to the front of the house to help. So you know what that means... Suspect got away. An ambulance got there quickly and little eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was rushed to the hospital and everyone thought she was gonna die. Tally had been beaten, strangled, raped, and she had lost a lot of blood. And she was unconscious and doctors told police, oh no, there's no chance of us saving her. But Tally ended up being in a coma for 32 days and it would be months before she got back up on her feet again but she survived. And I don't want to say luckily because I feel like this is that's the wrong word, but she has no memory of the attack. I watched an interview with Tally on Dateline and she said that she remembers the car ride, but she doesn't remember going up to his apartment or anything after. Tally did eventually go back to school, but she described it as very difficult when you walk into your elementary school classroom let that sink in, and all the kids look at you like you're supposed to be dead. Tally's parents ended up deciding that they couldn't stay in California after what happened, and they moved the family to Mexico. Now, after Tally's rescue, police went right back to the apartment to search for the suspect and to search for evidence, and they found a student ID for UCLA belonging to Rodney Alcala, a photography student. And also in the home, they found hundreds of photographs. They were of young women and even young boys. Some were clearly underage. They were all in various stages of undress, some were explicit, and many of the people in these photographs still to this day have not been identified. So Rodney Alcala got away, and there was no sign of him. Police spoke with Rodney's professors at UCLA, and they were all like, are you kidding? You've got to have the wrong guy. Like, there's no way Rod Alcala did something this horrible. Like, he's a nice, charming guy. You wouldn't hurt a fly. So now police have to figure out where this guy is, who this guy really is, and how someone that could do something so awful to a little girl had everybody fooled. Well, luckily, you and I exist in the future, so we're gonna have the answers within about a 30-minute dramatic reading, right? So Rodney Alcala was born Rodrigo Jacques alcala Beaucourt in San Antonio, Texas. Rodney's father decided in 1951 that he wanted to move the family back to Mexico, so he packed up the family and moved them, but then ditched them after three years. Rodney's mother was like, Awesome. So she quickly packed the kids back up and brought them back to the States, this time to suburban Los Angeles. Rodney had an older brother and he also had two sisters. And Rodney had a perfectly normal childhood. He had a very loving mother. He got a great education. He was a kind and loving kid. And he was incredibly intelligent. He had an IQ of about 135. Rodney joined the Army in 1961 at the age of 17, and he served as a clerk. And he did not do great in the Army. It seems that is where Rodney's life took a downward turn. He kept getting into trouble, he went AWOL several times. Rodney received a day pass in 1963 to go to New York, and when he got there, he smashed a Coke bottle over a random woman's head in the street. Luckily, she was able to run away and get away, and Rodney began receiving psychological assessments with the Army at this point. And Rodney showed no guilt or shame for anything he'd done. And the army would then say that Rodney had had a complete nervous breakdown and they diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. And Rodney was given an honorable medical discharge and he was released back into the general public with us. That was so nice of the Army, wasn't it? So Rodney moved back to L.A. near his mother, and he enrolled in UCLA in the Fine Arts Department as a photography student. Now, we don't really know what Rodney was up to from 1964 to 1968 when he attacked Tally, but I think we have a pretty good idea. I mean, we did find those photographs that he took of all those young women and boys and girls, and who knows who they are or what he did to them. But the 1968 attack on Tally was what started the manhunt for Rodney Alcala. But Unfortunately, while police were looking for Rodney in LA, he was well on his way to New York City. Rodney moved to New York City and began using the alias John Berger with an E. And he was like, this is it, this is my life now. And he enrolled in the NYU Film School and ironically began studying under Roman Polanski. Awesome. Birds of a feather, I guess. And he remained in New York City being a piece of shit for three years. Rodney also got a counseling job set up for the summer of 71 at a New Hampshire art camp for children. Because of course he did, using a slightly different alias, John Burger, with a U, spelled like the delicious food. And with a large crime wave sweeping through New York City at this time, Rodney decided it was the perfect opportunity to strike again. On June 24th, 1971, Leon Borstein got a call from his girlfriend's mother at work, and she was very worried because she couldn't get a hold of her daughter, Cornelia Crilly. Now, Cornelia was a sweet, young, beautiful 23-year-old woman, and she was a TWA flight attendant. And she had just moved into a new apartment with a couple of other flight attendant girlies, and she was living it up in New York City. So Leon told her mother, like, don't worry about it, I'm sure she's at the apartment, I'll leave work and I'll go look for her, don't worry. But when Leon got to Cornelia's apartment and his knocks went unanswered, he called police. When police arrived at Cornelia's apartment, they broke in through the back window and sadly they found Cornelia dead inside. Cornelia had been violently attacked. She had been raped and beaten and strangled with nylon stockings. Rodney's MO, if you haven't pieced it together yet, he would lure people in with promises of a photo shoot. He would rape, he would beat, he would often strangle to unconsciousness, then let them regain consciousness and then repeat, and he would often pose the bodies afterwards for maximum shock value. So, a real bag of dicks, this one. And unfortunately, Cornelia was new to the area, so she didn't have a lot of friends, so they didn't have a lot of leads to chase down. They had no suspects. And on top of that, there were about 2,000 murders in New York City that year, so it's not easy to close all those cases, so Cornelia's case quickly went cold. Now, while Cornelia's case was going cold in New York, Tally Shapiro's case was going cold in L.A. Police hadn't found Rodney Alcala, and they have been looking for him for three years, so the FBI got interested, and they ended up putting Rodney Alcala on the FBI's top ten most wanted list. Suddenly, across the country, flyers go out with Rodney Alcala's face all over them, and in August of 1971, two campers at a New Hampshire art camp were headed into town, when it suddenly started pouring, so they'd ducked into the local post office to hide from the rain while they're hanging out in the post office. They're looking at all the bulletin boards and they see all these big FBI most wanted posters all over the bulletin board and they're looking at them all and they're like, oh my God, that looks like Mr. Burger. So they run back to camp and they tell the head counselor, dude, we just saw an FBI wanted poster and it looks like John Berger. The counselor's like, oh my God, okay. Don't say anything or tell anyone. I'm gonna go, I'm I'm gonna look for myself. I'm an adult, I can handle this. So he goes to the post office and he's like, oh shit. So he calls the FBI, I think I found your man. So yay, they caught him, end of story, right? Did you forget this was the 70s? So Rodney Alcala, a.k.a. John Berger with an E, a.k.a. John Berger with a U, was captured and arrested for the rape and attempted murder of Tally Shapiro. Officer Steve Hodel, the lead detective on Tally's case, picked him up, brought him back to L.A. And of course, in questioning, Rodney was a complete weirdo. And when Hodel questioned Rodney about what he did to Tally, Rodney responded, Oh no, I don't want to talk about that. We don't talk about what Rod Alcala did. Okay, weirdo. Now, when Tally Shapiro's family was informed that Rodney was caught and they were going to go to trial, they said no. They were not going to come back from Mexico. Tally didn't remember anything. They did not talk about anything. They were not going to put her through any of that. So since Tally wasn't going to be there to testify, they couldn't charge Rodney with the rape and attempted murder. So the only option that the DA had was to offer Rodney a plea deal with the sole charge of child molestation. Fuck. And on top of that, at the time, the use of an indeterminate sentence was a thing. So, instead of a judge having a sentencing hearing and assigning an appropriate amount of years as punishment, Rodney was sentenced to one year to life, and the decision was placed in the hands of a parole board, who could just let him out whenever they fucking felt like it. Now, Rodney was very smart. He was excellent at reading people. He was very charming. He was very persuasive. He was a sociopath. You think he's not going to play the parole board like a fucking ukulele? He was receiving therapy in prison and he got annual parole hearings. So at every hearing and at every therapy session, he could just act like he was rehabilitated and that everything was going so great. And they bought it. And after 34 months of his sentence, Rodney was paroled. They let him go. They're like, great job, buddy. You really turned it around after you raped an eight-year-old girl and left her in a coma for a month great job fuck seriously fuck this guy (laughs) so rod starts living it up in la playing photographer and not shockingly at all he was arrested again in two months because he was caught by park rangers smoking weed on the cliffs of sunset beach with a 13 year old girl Oops. And Rodney was sent back to prison for two and a half years. Rodney was paroled again in 1977, and he got a fresh new parole officer. And he used his charm to ask his parole officer if he could have a little vacation. And his parole officer said, sure, buddy. Sounds great. Have a great time. And in July of 1977, Rodney was able to fly to New York City which at the time was a mess. It was super hot. There was this ridiculous heat wave. Garbage wasn't being collected. So the streets were a mess and crime was completely out of control, including Son of Sam running around shooting people in their cars. So Rodney was like, this is the place for me. I'll fit right in. Now, on July 13th and 14th of 1977 was the New York City blackout. It was incredibly hot. There was no power, no electricity, no refrigeration, no lights. So people were just outside in swimsuits hanging out. Like, why would you hang out inside? Like, your fridge is rotting. It's probably stinky. There's no TV to watch. Go outside and spray yourself with a hose, you know? So Rodney's hanging out on the sidewalk, just chatting with people, offering to take photographs. When he met this beautiful young woman and he was like, you are so beautiful. Can I take your photograph? And she was like, sure, honey, go ahead. And this young woman was 23 year old Ellen James Hover. And she was the daughter of Herman Hover, who was the owner of the very popular Hollywood nightclub Syros. And she was also the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. So she was an heiress. She was a socialite. Now during the blackout, people couldn't really communicate. So on the 15th, when all the power came back on, people started reaching out to their friends and family to check in. But none of Ellen's friends and family could get a hold of Ellen on the 15th, so nobody had heard from her since before the blackout. Immediately, Ellen was reported missing to the police, and it was on the TV news that night. When police entered Ellen's apartment to search for clues to see where she might have went, they saw on her calendar that on the 15th, Ellen had an appointment with photographer John Berger. Now this disappearance was a big deal. There was a lot of pressure on police to find Ellen and to find this mysterious man, John Berger. So Rodney gets wind of this and he's like, oh shit, the NYPD is looking for John Berger. Time to go back to LA and be Rod Alcala again. So Rod is back in LA and as soon as he returned, 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead was found brutally bludgeoned in her apartment in 1977. Her case quickly went cold and Rodney wasn't even on the radar. So Rodney manages to get a job in 1978 with the LA Times as a typesetter, which is mind-boggling to me because he evaded arrest for 3 years. He was on the FBI most wanted list. He was on parole and he was still able to use his real ass name and apply for this job and get it. And he was such a weirdo. He would bring in a bunch of his photographs to show his coworkers to be like, "Hey, look at how talented I am." And they were like nude photos of underage boys. I guess it was just a sign of the times because his coworkers would be like, "Oh, wow, he's he's a strange fellow, isn't he?" Huh. Nowadays, if someone brought in <laughs> nude photos of underage boys to work, like, straight to jail. HR nightmare. Now Rodney was living with his mother at this point, where he had his own separate entrance, and he would also send a ton of his photographs that he took off to New York and sell them, and they would end up in pornography. What a fucking entrepreneur. So the NYPD manages to connect the dots between Rod Alcala and John Berger. It just took a little bit of time, because... No Google. So the NYPD actually went to LA and questioned Rodney about his appointment with Ellen Hoover. He told the NYPD, yeah, I was with her and I photographed her. We had a lovely time. The pictures turned out great. And then I dropped her off. I never saw her again. And they didn't really have any evidence to arrest him because they didn't have a body. They hadn't found her yet. Sadly, Ellen's remains were found 11 months later buried under heavy rocks on a hillside overlooking the Hudson River. She was identified with dental records, and because her remains were skeletal at that point, they didn't really find any forensic evidence to link to her killer. And honestly, how are you supposed to pinpoint one killer when it's the 1970s and there's a serial killer every 50 feet? Like, at the same time as this, we had the Hillside Strangler, the Night Stalker, two freeway killers, the Bedroom Basher, and over in the Midwest, John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy. Like... In 77 and 78, so many women were murdered in the U.S. And so Rodney was able to pick off one here and there and make it look like one of the other guys did it. In 1978, Rodney was actually interviewed by the LAPD's Hillside Strangler Task Force. Now, during the interview, Rodney was actually ruled out as a suspect, but he was arrested for marijuana possession and did a very brief sentence. And why you would have marijuana in your pocket when you went in to talk to the LAPD is beyond me. (laughs) But maybe that's just further evidence of how cocky he was and how untouchable he thought he was. In November 1978, Jill Barcombe essentially ran away from New York to L.A. And I hesitate to call her a runaway because she was an adult, you know. But she ran off to L.A. with some friends for some fun, some excitement, some adventure. But on November 10th, 1978, Jill Barcombe's body was discovered off Franklin Canyon Road. Which is just down the street from Marlon Brando's house, in case... That's an important fact for you. She was found bent over with her face in the dirt, half naked, multiple ligature marks. She had been raped. She had been beaten so severely that she was unrecognizable. Just awful, awful. And at the time, it was assumed that Jill was a victim of the Hillside Strangler because... That's what he did. He strangled women and left them on a hillside. Now see, that—that that is a serial killer nickname that makes sense. And Jill Barcombe would remain on the Hillside Stranglers list of victims until 2004. Now, quick side note, did you watch or listen to my last episode about the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, where the LAPD officer, Stephanie Lazarus, killed her crush's wife? In that episode, I mentioned a lab tech with the LAPD, Jennifer Francis. And I said a lot about her in that episode, but I had to cut a bunch of it because if I hadn't, the episode, would have been like over an hour long, but Jennifer fought to test the DNA in Jill Barcombe's file because she didn't believe that she was one of the Hillside Stranglers victims, she believed that she was one of Rodney Alcala's victims. But the corrupt LAPD at the time in the 80s told her not to open up that can of worms and she had to test the DNA behind their back to avoid harassment and retaliation. She single-handedly solved Jill's case and many others during her career with the LAPD, and she was harassed and bullied and threatened for doing her damn job. And she actually tried to sue the LAPD for all their bullshit, but unfortunately she didn't win. Like, seriously, somebody needs to make a movie about Jennifer Francis. I'm gonna do it. I call dibs. I'm writing the script. So anyway, I just wanted to mention Jill Barcombe because it shows how Rodney used other active serial killers and essentially copied their MOs and staged the scenes to make it look like one of the other guys did it. And on top of that, Jill Barcombe had a friend who was killed by the Hillside Strangler. Let's talk about an added level of complication to make it look like Jill was also a victim of the Hillside Strangler. That is freaking crazy. In September 1978, Rodney thought it would be really fun to audition for the television show, The Dating Game. But Rodney used his real ass name, his his real self, and he got on the damn show and they didn't run background checks or anything apparently. And he won. So the dating game was very popular. A beautiful young bachelorette would sit on the other side of a partition from three bachelors and she would ask them silly questions and would choose the winner based off of their answers and their personality. And then after the show, her and the guy she picked got to go on a date. Fun.
1: Welcome to the dating game. And we'll get right underway. It's time to meet our first three eligible bachelors for game number one. And here they are. Good luck, gentlemen. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome here is a young lady with a wealth of experience she once earned a living massaging feet but she quit when her boss suggested that she work her way up then she taught school in phoenix arizona and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of amour welcome if you will sensational Cheryl Bradshaw you know there are three bachelors over there they'll be one two and three ask them anything you like to find out more about them except their name age occupation or income okay and we're going to start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay.
2: Bachelor number one. Yes. What's your best time?
1: The best time is at night. Nighttime.
2: Why do you say that?
1: Because that's the only time there is.
2: The only time? What's wrong with uh, morning, afternoon?
1: Well, they're okay, but nighttime is when it really gets good.
2: I'm I'm a drama teacher, and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it.
1: Come on, over here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey, we ought to go out and boogie. I am serving you for dinner oh what are you called and what do you look like
1: i'm called the banana and i look really good
2: Uh, can you be a little more descriptive
1: peel me (laughs) will that date be bachelor number one bachelor number two or bachelor number three who gets the date
2: well, I like bananas, so I'll
1: take one. Number one. That's your number one. All right. He's a skydiver, so he's got a lot of nerve. He's into motorcycling. He's also a fine photographer. Say hello to Rodney Alcala. Rodney, come say hello. Congratulations, Rod. You did it with the one answer.
0: Ew, 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 ew. Now, the dating game in the 70s was all about, like, being really sexy, and, like, they wanted to set themselves apart from the dating game in the 60s, so there was a lot more raunchy questions and a lot of sexual innuendos, so Rodney's answers at the time, they were, like, totally normal, they fit right in. But knowing what we know now, it's so creepy, and what the fuck was that creepy old man bit? That gave me chills. After the show finished filming And Cheryl and Rodney were talking backstage Cheryl was like "Mm Mm-mm And she ended up refusing to go on a date with him. Now, part of the reason why I'm covering this case today is because I recently found out that Anna Kendrick directed and starred in a movie about Cheryl Bradshaw's experience with Rodney on The Dating Game. And when I heard that, I was like, well, time to read more about this guy. But I'm very interested to see how they managed to make an entire movie about just this part of the story. You know, but Cheryl Bradshaw did write a book about her experience. So she managed to find enough material for an entire book. So I'm intrigued. So after Cheryl got her bad vibes, she went to the show's producers and she was like, "Mm -mm, he's creepy, I got a bad feeling, I cannot go on a date with that guy. Is that gonna be a problem? And they were like, no, 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 I mean, we already got our episode, so we don't really give a shit if you go out with him or not. (laughs) So we'll we'll call him and we'll tell him you're not interested. Now, how do you imagine a narcissistic serial killer with antisocial personality disorder is gonna react to that kind of rejection after a very public television appearance? He rapid fire killed three more women. So Rodney's next three victims were 31-year-old Charlotte Lamb, who was found beaten and raped and strangled and left in a laundry room of some random apartment complex. Again, shockingly posed. Then 21-year-old Jill Parento was killed in her Burbank apartment on June 13th, 1979. Again, shockingly posed. Then on June 20th, Rodney bumps into 17-year-old Lori Wirtz. She's roller skating on Sunset Beach with her best friend and he convinces Lori to let him take her picture. He ended up trying to get Lori to get in his car and go with him, but she declined and eventually he did get in his car and leave and Lori saw him drive toward Huntington Beach. And this would become important later because it proves that Rodney was in that area on that day because later he claims that he was not. His next victim would be 12-year-old Robin Samso and would be the reason why Rodney Alcala was caught. On June 20th, 1979, the same day Rodney had just taken those pictures of Lori Wirtz on her roller skates, Robin had a ballet class that day, but she had a couple of hours to kill before class, so naturally she went to her best friend Bridget's house to play for a couple of hours before class. Two girls decided on a cartwheel contest at the beach, like you do. When you're 12 so the girls are cartwheeling and playing and having fun on the beach when up comes fucking rodney alcala with his camera and he's like oh my god you girls are so beautiful you could be models and he's asking them if he can take their picture Ugh. sorry i gagged in my mouth ew and bridget was having none of his bullshit she just kept saying no we're not models No, we don't want our picture taken. Nope, 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 nope. And then Rodney reached out and put his hand on Robin's leg while they were talking. And just as Bridget was grabbing Robin's arm to be like, red flag, Bridget's neighbor comes walking up to the girls. Now this lady, she's a mom, okay? She can smell trouble from a mile away. So she walks up to the girls, full mom voice. What's going on? What's going on? You girls okay? Who are you? (laughs) And Rodney immediately spooked. Oh, I've been spotted by a mom. Turned and scampered off like a rat. And he was out of there. Now, obviously rattled. The fun at the beach was over. So the girls went back to Bridget's house. And they were both pretty freaked out, kind of shaken. And Robin's like, well, now I'm running late. I have to go to ballet class. So I'm just going to go straight there. And Bridget didn't feel good about it. So she was like, take my bike. Take my bicycle. And you'll get there faster. And just go straight there. And do not stop. So Robin rode off on Bridget's bicycle And that was the last time Bridget saw her best friend, Robin. Robin never showed up to ballet class. No Robin, no bike. And as soon as Bridget and her family found out that Robin was missing and that the police had been called, Bridget told her parents... It was that guy. It was that guy on the beach who tried to take our picture. Now, Bridget sat down with police to draw up a sketch of the suspect. And he was a pretty distinctive looking dude. Like, very sharp, dramatic features, that long black hair. And I guess the sketch was pretty good. Because as soon as those flyers went out, Rodney Alcala's parole officer saw one. It was like, oh shit, that's my guy. Great job, Bridget. Twelve days later... (sighs) 12-year-old Robin Samso's remains were found in the Los Angeles foothills, but animals had scavenged her body. So they didn't know it was Robin at first inspection, but they did find a shoe and a beach towel that were identified as Robin's. Rodney was arrested and a search warrant was issued for Rodney's mother's house where he was living. And during the search, they found a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. But paperwork was actually not included in their search warrant. But luckily, the receipt was just out in the open. So they were able to just like write down all of the information on it. So because of this, the storage locker was found and it was searched. And they found a shit ton of evidence, a ton of trophies, a bunch of jewelry, thousands of photographs. And they found Robin Samso's favorite earrings. Seriously, fuck this guy. In 1980, the trial for the murder of 12-year-old Robin Samso began. Now, the jury only deliberated for five hours before they came back with a guilty verdict and sentenced him to death and sent him off to San Quentin. Great. But several years later, in 1984, Rod Alcala appealed... Because he's a piece of shit. And to everyone's shock, his conviction was overturned. Because it was determined that the jury was improperly informed of Rodney Alcala's prior sex crimes. And I'm sitting here thinking, so what? Okay, so it's unfairly prejudicial to know that you were a rapist before this rape and murder. And I mean, yeah, maybe it is, but fucking shouldn't it be? (laughs) Like, How is that not relevant? I don't know. Give me a fucking break. I don't know. It's devastating. It was devastating. Now, it's not like they just let him go. He was granted a retrial in 1986. Second trial, guilty again, death penalty again. Great. While sitting in prison, Rodney released a self-published book called You, the Jury in which he claimed he was innocent and suggested a different suspect. He also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system, one for a slip and fall, and the other because he claimed the prison systems denied him a low-fat diet. Dude, no one cares. No one cares, but it's not over. In 2001, Rodney's death sentence was overturned again. He's 58 years old at this point and still appealing. Now this time it was overturned because Rodney presented a lack of effective defense argument. So basically he was saying, my defense team didn't do good enough. Well, if his defense attorney in 1986 wasn't good enough, who's going to do a better job now in 2001? Why, himself? Of course. Oh my God. Okay, my dude, so you want a new trial in 2001 now that we've basically mastered DNA evidence and now that we have like 72 crime shows on television? Bring it. DNA was taken from Rodney Alcala and compared to every case file in which he was suspected even a little bit. And remember Jennifer Francis? she helped and rodney's dna matched dna from the case files of georgia wickstead charlotte lamb jill parento and jill barco so all of those murders were added to the trial on top of robin samso's murder and the trial began in 2010 31 years after robin was killed now let me tell you this guy (laughs) rodney not only defended himself but he questioned himself now what do i mean by this he did funny voices (laughs) Like, he would do a funny lawyer voice and ask himself questions and then turn back into Rodney to answer them. Like, he would be like, So, Rodney, where were you on June 20th, 1979? Well, I was nowhere near Huntington Beach that day. Can you imagine being in that courtroom? Like, what's he doing? (laughs) And he freaking cross-examined the witnesses. He questioned Robin Samso's mother. Can you imagine the man that killed your daughter asking you stupid fucking questions, doing stupid fucking voices, arguing with you over whether or not the earrings found in the storage locker were actually your daughter's? It did not look good. It made him look like a monster. Like, everyone knew he did it at that point. It was gross. And he played clips from his dating game episode because he was wearing gold earrings on that episode and he was like look couldn't those fabulous earrings on my fabulous ears be the earrings that were found in the storage locker it's plausible also watch this part I was so good in this part the banana bit it killed (laughs) ew Rodney no and guess who testified as a witness for the prosecution to describe prior bad acts to prove what a monster he was Callie Shapiro, and it was very important for her to be in the courtroom for the Samso family to help end this bullshit once and for all. Anyway, he sucks and he was sentenced to death again for the third time and guilty on all charges. After the trial, the Huntington Beach Police Department and the NYPD released 120 of Rodney's photographs to the public so that people could help identify the people in his photos. About 900 of them were too explicit to release to the public. 21 women came forward to identify themselves in the photographs, and six families actually came forward to identify who they believed were missing family members that had gone missing and were never found. In 2013, New York decided to try Rodney for the two murders that happened there. Ellen Hover, the socialite heiress, and Cornelia Crilly. Surprisingly, he pled guilty, probably because of the 2010 trial where he looked like a total fool. He was sentenced to 25 years to life on top of his death sentence. In 2016, one of Rodney's photographs was identified as Christine Thornton, who disappeared in 1977 and her body was discovered in Wyoming in 1982. And Rodney admitted to photographing her, but he did not admit to killing Christine, who was six months pregnant at the time. But poor 73-year-old Rodney, he was just too ill to travel from California to Wyoming for the trial. What a dick. In 2019, California put a moratorium on the death penalty, and shortly after Rodney's death sentence was commuted, Robin Samso's mother passed away. So she never got to see Rodney Alcala executed like she wanted, which is so awful. That's just unfair. Rodney Alcala died on July 24th, 2021 of unspecified natural causes after a long illness, which I I hate that. Rodney Alcala's 110 released photographs are still available online. I will link them in the description box of the YouTube video. There's a tip line on that website that you can call, I don't know, maybe somebody can recognize a long lost family member or friend, who knows? Based on the unidentified people in Rodney's photographs and cold cases from across the country where Rodney is one of the main suspects, it's believed that Rodney's victim count could be as high as 130 people. I don't know. We may never know, but I think we can all agree that we are all better off without this guy. And that is the end of today's true crime case. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C Elise, S E E E L I S E. If you have any questions or any case ideas that you'd like to share, email me at seealiseclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties described are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.